following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Boys and girls, brothers and sisters, I want you to think about your morning routine, your evening routine. Think about your day-to-day activities, the things that you do every day. All right, what's the easiest thing that you do each day or each morning? Is it brushing your teeth? I know there's a lot of resistance to that in some households, but it's fairly easy to do. Maybe it's picking out your clothes or uh, putting them on. Perhaps it's eating Food when you're hungry, that's pretty easy if you're hungry. All right, now turning from the easy things, think about the hard things to do. Uh, What are the things that you do every day that are a bit more difficult? Perhaps getting out of bed in the morning. That could be difficult for some of us. Perhaps picking out your clothes is not easy. Maybe you agonize over what to wear, and that's a very hard thing for you. What about going to work every day, putting in the time, or perhaps picking up your school books and going to school or to the other room where you will study. Or maybe the hardest thing you do every day, and you see where this is going, is praying. Prayer, it's a very difficult thing. Well, we know from last week that Jesus assumed that his disciples would pray regularly, that they would not stop praying all of a sudden when they became Christians, but that they would continue praying regularly, perhaps multiple times a day as the Spirit would lead them or at appointed hours or whatever the case may be. That this prayer would be a part of their daily routines as Christians. But that doesn't make it an easy thing. In fact, as I said earlier, it is the hardest thing to do in the Christian life. And so Jesus tells them, he tells his disciples what to pray for, namely what we considered last week, for the good of their souls to the glory of God, for the good of their souls to the glory of God, not like the hypocrites and not like the pagans or the heathens. And at the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount, structurally speaking, if you were to break it all up, at the very center of everything is this little excursus, these few verses where Jesus gives his disciples a form or a method for prayer. He teaches them to pray, and he teaches them how to pray rightly, what it is they're to pray for, And in what heart and spirit they should be praying. He teaches them, as many uh, Jewish rabbis did in his day. He teaches them a prayer of his own authoritative making. And we call this the Lord's Prayer. Nowhere in Scripture is it called the Lord's Prayer. But it's the prayer which our Lord gives to us. So we call it the Lord's Prayer. And I think rightly so. The Lord's Prayer is divided into four parts. Uh, You have a preface. Then you have three petitions concerning God's interests in the world. And then you have three petitions concerning our interests or needs in the world. And then finally, a conclusion. 
Thus, the structure of the Lord's Prayer, as observed by John Calvin, actually mirrors or reflects the structure of the Ten Commandments, which also, as a, as a unit, has a preface, five commandments concerning our relationship to God, and then five commandments concerning our relationship to other men. So this morning, we're considering the preface to the Lord's Prayer given in the first half of Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. And if we were to turn to the Westminster Larger Catechism and look at question 189, we're asking, what doth the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? The preface of the Lord's Prayer contained in these words, Our Father, which art in heaven, teacheth us when we pray to draw near to God with confidence of His fatherly goodness and our interest therein, with reverence and all other childlike dispositions, heavenly affections, and due apprehensions of his sovereign power, majesty, and gracious condescension, as also to pray with and for others. This and the somewhat simpler version in the Westminster Shorter Catechism are helpful. I by no means want to belittle them or demean them, uh, but they're a bit complicated, aren't they? <laughs> There's a lot of words in there. So to simplify that, I will show you this morning from Matthew 6, verse 9, very simply. Christians pray to God with both love and wonder. Christians pray to God with both love and wonder. We'll consider in the first place, in this preface to the Lord's Prayer, our love in prayer. And then in the second place, I don't even think I need to say it. You could probably guess it. Our wonder in prayer. Our love in prayer. Our wonder in prayer. Bearing in mind at all times that Christ fully expects us to pray. And this prayer He gives is a response to the false prayer of hypocrites and pagans, which He outlined in the previous verses I referred to you. Uh, refer you to my sermon from last week. So first, let's think about our love in prayer. And the very first question we ought to ask when we consider our love in prayer is, what kind of love are we talking about? Well, we're talking about a very childlike, filial, but also affectionate love. It's the love of children addressing their father. For what does Christ tell his disciples to do when they get on their knees to pray, when they gather for worship and prayer together as a people? They, he tells them to address God as our father. Yes, it's good to address him as our king. It would be appropriate to say Christ, our savior in prayer. But in this instance, he's teaching his disciples to make it a habit to make it their default setting at all times to pray to God as Father. And so they're praying then as children. This is not an innovation that Christ comes up with, even though he's emphasizing it even throughout Matthew's Gospel, and especially in the Sermon on the Mount, the fatherhood of God. But it's rooted in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 4, we read, Have you not just now called to me my Father, you are the friend of my youth. So the people of Israel corporately would address God as Father. In Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11, Jesus tells us a bit more, gives us some more reasons as to why we should approach God as Father with the love of children for a good father. In Matthew 7, 7 to 11, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. 
Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? So we come to God as a good father, as children expecting good things from their father. Luke 11, verses 11 to 13 is a parallel passage of that Matthew 7 uh, passage where Christ once again says, what kind of man would give his son bad gifts? A snake in place of a fish or a scorpion in place of an egg. If you know how to give good gifts, surely your Father in heaven does. And so when, when the disciples come to God in heaven, when all those who have faith in Christ and through Christ make their approach to the throne of grace, we come as children in need with anxiety to their Father. 1 Peter 5.7 says that we come casting all your anxiety on Him because he cares for you. Boys and girls, when you go to your mom or your dad in the house and you're anxious over something, you can't get your, your pants buttoned or your belt buckled or your shoes tied or you're hungry, hungry, I'm hungry, I want food. You go expecting your parents to help you. Why? Because mommy and daddy are good to you and they love you. And fathers and mothers... When your children come to you, do you say, oh, sorry, kid, you got to figure that one out on your own? No. If your child really can't do it on his or her own, you go and render aid. You don't have your kid standing at the stove making a meal for himself when he's two years old. That's outrageous. It would be abusive. No, you're good parents. You care for your children. Likewise, our Father cares for us, so let us go to Him with confidence. Even as it's expressed in Psalm 103.13, as we said earlier in the assurance of pardon, just as a good father has compassion on his children, so our good God, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, has compassion on those who fear Him, that is, His children. There's perhaps no more famous or better picture of this in all of Scripture than what's found in Luke 15. When the prodigal son, in Jesus' parable, runs away from his father, taking the money that would have been his at his father's death, basically saying, I wish that you would die so I could have your money. And he takes it from his dad and goes to the far country, forsakes his heritage, squanders everything, and then realizes that he has no hope in the world except in the goodness of his father. What does he say? He says, I will get up and go to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Implying what? Please forgive me. Receive me again into your house. So too, when the sinner recognizes his sin, when we sin as Christians and we confess our sins day by day, we go to a father who is quick to run to us and to embrace us in his love and his compassion and his goodness. And in Jeremiah 3.19, just to round this out, then I said, this is God speaking, how I would set you among my sons if you would return to me and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of the nations. And I said, you shall call me, quote, my father, and not turn away from following me. God himself reveals himself to us as our father, not just that he created us, all from one man, from Adam, 
but that he yearns to relate to us as a good, faithful father. So then why? This is the kind of love we're speaking of, a love that we express together as our father, not merely alone as my father, but all together as God's people. So why? Well, because God is our father, not merely by creation, but by spiritual adoption or redemption, reconciliation in Christ. We have been brought into the family. We've been adopted in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.5 says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. To whomself? The Father's self. According to the kind intention of His, the Father's will. Romans 8.15 For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption. As sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And Galatians 4, 6, Paul writes, Because you are sons, God the Father has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our or your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We are sons by adoption in Christ insofar as we have faith in Christ, which is a work of the Spirit, whom is sent by the Father through the Son to awaken us out of our sin and misery and to unite us to Christ in our effectual calling that we might enjoy. This is where it all meets. That we might enjoy what? Service in God's kingdom? Yeah. That we might enjoy what? Uh, mansions in heaven? Yeah. But what's primary, what's primary here? That we might enjoy it. The apex, the peak of Christian salvation. That we might enjoy sonship, adoption, membership in God's family as sons and daughters. This is a profound and uniquely Christian reality. No other world religion can claim this or tries to claim it. The Muslims have 99 names for God. We all know Allah, which just means God. But they have 99 names. You know what they never call him? They never call him Abuna, which is in Arabic, our father. But you know who do? Every single time they meet for worship, Arabic Christians. They begin their prayers, Abuna, our father, who art in heaven just as we do. This is a profound reality that God is our Father. And He brings it right home. Isaiah 63, 15 and 16. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation we cry out, where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. You're grieving about the state of the church or about the state of society. To whom do you turn? To a mighty king, a glorious God, exalted in heaven above? Yes. And also... For you are our Father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer from of old is your name. This glorious reality of who God is through Christ Jesus revealed to us as a loving Father. Colossians 1, 20-22 says then, Through Him, that is Jesus, to reconcile all things to Himself, that is, the Father having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Paul, who once sought to kill and to imprison the sons and daughters of God, can say this as the apostle of grace. 
that you have been reconciled to, uh, to God the Father through Christ the Son by the blood spilled on the cross. And Ryle says here, we call him Father then in the highest sense, as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, reconciling us to himself through the death of his Son. This is why we express this kind of love in prayer. This is why we come to God as a Father personally invested in us because he's proven it over and over again. But what if the concept of a father is painful to us? What if we don't know our father or if we know only a wicked father? Our depraved culture around us is happy to supply you with plenty of reasons not to regard God as your father. And perhaps your personal or family history does the same. Some of us here have good fathers. We thank God for them. But others of us have been betrayed, let down, neglected, abandoned, or even abused verbally or physically or worse by our earthly fathers. And though we can think of very few things more horrific than a father or mother harming their own children, yet we would be willfully ignorant to deny that this happens each and every day in our fallen world, in this sin-wracked environment of ours. But the gospel does not eradicate the concept of God's fatherhood. It doesn't smash the patriarchy. It doesn't downplay the fact that God indeed is our father. Rather, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, of redemption in him, restores the fatherhood of God to its proper place. By the Spirit of God, the Spirit of adoption, a healing balm is applied to those spiritual and emotional wounds which we have from our earthly fathers when we are united to Christ and brought into the kingdom and family of heaven. In Christ, we have a renewed family relationship to God such that He is our Father and a good Father. A Father who not only provides for us and protects us, who takes care of us and pays the bills or whatever, but who delights to be with us, to play with us. As a good father has his baby on his lap and makes goofy cooing noises, lisps to his child. So too, our father delights to commune with his children as he protects and guides and instructs and blesses them in all manner of ways. And so when you come to Christ the Savior, when you're united to him through faith wrought by the Spirit in the new birth, and you come, therefore, to a father, a father who will surround you with his protecting uh, love as the mountains of Zion surround Jerusalem in Psalm 125. As a mother's hen's uh, wings cover her chicks, as Christ gives us that image elsewhere. As an, as an impenetrable armor surrounds a warrior's chest in which his heart beats and in which his lungs breathe. So too our God protects us and our spirits and our souls. He will not cast us away. Through Christ, you come to God who will never leave you or forsake you. You come to God who will neither neglect you nor abuse you. You come to a loving Father, a heavenly Father. He redeems not only our souls from the pit, He redeems the very idea and concept of fatherhood and restores it to its proper place. From John 3.16, we know that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, so that um, whoever believes in Him would not perish, 
but have eternal life. But where, from where, did God give his son? From where did the Father send or give the Son? Where does God make his abode? What do we know about this Father God that we approach? As a father, he's near to us and each one of us and all of us together. He's imminent in that way. He's right here with us. And uh, those of us who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, with a living faith. But this is a great mystery for those of us who are born of the Spirit. Know that that Spirit himself is from above where the Father is. Christ came down from heaven to save us. And God, our Father, is heavenly. He is, he is the one who is in heaven. And this leads us to the second point. Having considered our love in prayer, we can now take up our wonder in prayer. Our wonder in prayer. When we're confronted with the majesty and glory of God in heaven who is utterly unlike us, we can do nothing but wonder as we stare into the depths. So what kind of wonder is this? It's a faith-filled, reverent, serious, holy wonder. It is utterly different than the rank casualness by which so many of us even approach God as a buddy. He is our friend, but he's not our buddy guy. He's our God in heaven. So we approach him with wonder and with reverence and with awe. He who sits in the heavens laughs, Psalm 2 tells us. The Lord scoffs at them all. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the nations of the world. He looks down on Russia and Ukraine in their war and he scoffs. He looks down at the prospect of nuclear war and it's nothing to him in terms of his power and his might. But he's concerned for his children. And so he's deeply invested in what goes on in our world. Psalm 115, verse 3, But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. He is all-powerful. This is the God we approach in prayer and in worship. Psalm 103, 19, from the same psalm that addresses God as a compassionate Father, we read this, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. These are really good lines about the power of God. 2 Chronicles 2.6, what is confessed of God? The king of Israel says, who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. The highest heavens cannot contain him. It's not that he's restricted to heaven. It's that he makes that his abode apart from us, above us. In the order of creation, the heavens are above the earth. He's there. But even the heavens cannot contain him. And so who am I that I should build a house for him except to burn incense before him? To say that he's in heaven is not to say that he's restricted to heaven, but just to say that he is infinite and eternal and the heavens can't even contain him. Psalm 33, verses 13 and 14. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From his dwelling place he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. Indeed, this is the God with whom we have to do. So why then do we come before him with faith and holy, reverent wonder and awe? Why? Well, because God is our creator, utterly unlike us. 
And we cannot see Him as He is unless we apprehend Him by faith in Christ who causes us to wonder. John 14, 6, what does Jesus say to His disciple? He says, uh, I myself am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except or but through Me. I am the exclusive mediator between God and man, Jesus says. You want to see God? you got to come through Me. That's what Jesus says in John 14, 6. Ephesians 2, 18. For through Him, Christ, we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. Prayer is a Trinitarian spiritual thing. Christian prayer, anyway. All other prayer is false. But Christian prayer, we come to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. And this great, wonderful mystery that God, in all of His being, every, each of the three persons of the Godhead, in this mysterious oneness and threeness, comes and, and interacts with us in prayer. So we wonder. We stand in wonder and awe at the majesty and beauty and perfection of God as we pray. Hebrews 8, 1, uh, the second half of it, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That high priest interceding for us. And in John 8, 42 and 43, Jesus said to them, to the Pharisees, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. That is, you have not been born again. The Spirit has not given you ears to hear or eyes to see. And so we must come, and our wonder, therefore, must be full of faith in Christ. Do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you closed with Him in faith? If you have not then you cannot come to the Father. You cannot pray and be heard except through Jesus. And so what does it look like then to express wonder, the kind of wonder that we express in prayer? Well, the world again will present us with a lame, anemic, uh, empty counterfeit to the kind of wonder that we're called to in our passage as we pray, Our Father who art in heaven. The world uh, gives us a few different options. The atheist thinks that there's something profound in the suggestion that we're made up of stardust, as if that's somehow exciting or wonderful. You know what stardust is? It probably smells like rotten eggs. I mean, it's like, it's not, it's just material. It's, it's dust. It's, it's, it's gas. It's fumes. There's nothing wonderful or mysterious about that. But yet the atheist will say, Ooh, we're made of stardust, carried here on the backs of crystals that hit our planet billions of years ago, acting as if that's some kind of wonderful mystery. That's a materialistic counterfeit, brothers and sisters. Don't be wooed by it. The various cults and false religions of the world, they'll confess that there is a God, unlike the atheist, but then they multiply complicated rites and rituals to somehow manufacture or create a sense of mystery and false wonder. And boys and girls, I'm concerned for you in this. For so many children who grow up in evangelical churches and then get tired of the same old things, they look at Eastern Orthodoxy or Roman Catholicism or, or Eastern religions like Buddhism and Hinduism, and they say, well, that looks cool. They have gold filigree on pictures of old guys. 
oh, they have nice smelling incense and lights. They have Gothic architecture and a tradition and all these, all these beautiful things. And sure, there's earthly beauty there, but is there true spiritual wonder? Or is it just manipulation like so many fog machines and light shows and pyrotechnic effects? It's just stuff. No, the kind of wonder we have is much deeper. It's real. Historically, even in, in the present day, there are men and women, and this is becoming more and more popular in our day and age, isn't it, who practice so-called dark arts, who consult mediums and spiritists, who wonder at the, at the ability of fortune tellers to tell them that they might have a nice day next week. And they practice this magic and to seek supernatural control over the elements of the world. And we look at the, even the performances of magicians and sleight-of-hand artists with wonder and awe. Wow, how do you do that? That's really cool. But that's not how we come to God the Father, is it? We come to a spiritual being who is in heavens, utterly separated from us by a great chasm of being, and yet in contact with us through His Son in the Incarnation. And we wonder at this reality and not the sleight of hand. Maybe to bring this more down to earth to some of you, particularly after yesterday, we applaud the extraordinary athlete, the skillful, virtuoso musician, or the amazing artist who can replicate reality or even manipulate it on a canvas for our enjoyment. And we gaze with wonder upon their impressive accomplishments and productions. And unlike anything else I've already talked about, I think it's appropriate to appreciate human achievement and to give glory to God for it. But that's that being impressed feeling is not what we're talking about when I'm talking about wonder from Matthew 6, verse 9. What does it look like to express wonder at the revelation of God? And in our remaining time, very briefly, I propose five aspects of this. First, the wonder of the Christian in prayer is intelligent unto holiness. Intelligent unto holiness. Leviticus 10.3, Moses sums this up for Aaron. By those who come near me, that is God, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. So we apprehend something. We acknowledge something. You don't just feel it, but it goes, passes through the mind. We see and believe something about God, that He is who He is and He is holy. And we, with intelligence in our minds, grasp unto that in prayer. Ecclesiastes 5.2, the preacher warns his hearers, do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. That is, come to God acknowledging He is who He is and that He's utterly different than you are. And let that realization trigger holiness, push you into a holy posture before God in prayer. Secondly, wonder in prayer is emotional as well. It's affectional. It's at the level of the heart. It's not merely a matter of assenting to truth or to thinking something right or even to doing the right things in prayer and saying the right words. It's a matter of being in, uh, sincerely at the heart level, invested in the relationship with God. That you are communing with Him should bring you delight as a child who delights to be with his mother or his father, as I talked about last week. Thirdly, 
This wonder is volitional. That is, it operates at the level of the will. We determine to stand in wonder as we consider the mystery of God interacting with us, being in contact with us. It's a determined wonder that overcomes all obstacles and distractions. Fourthly, this wonder is steady and consistent. In the life of a Christian, these things ebb and flow, do they not? Sometimes we're really on fire for the Lord. And then other times, it's like we're covered with a wet blanket. And it's hard to get out of bed. But through it all, to some degree or another, by the Spirit's help and in His power, there's a steady and consistent remembrance that you have a relationship with the Creator of the cosmos. That you have some connection through Christ with our Father who art in heaven. That even in your prayers, your regular, sometimes routine prayers, you are entering into a transcendental transaction. You are entering into the Holy of Holies and approaching the throne of grace. And thus, just as your prayer is to be regular, if it is, so too should be your wonder as you come into contact with the divine. Unremitting wonder. And then fifthly and finally here, this wonder is lasting and enduring not only in its presence in your prayer life, but in its effects as we consider the future. In prayer as in worship, what we're doing is anticipating in a very small way our eternal resting place in communion with our God in heaven. We commune with Him on earth in prayer and in worship. We commune with Him in heaven in spirit and in truth for all eternity. Consider the wonder and the mystery of this. That you, who were once alienated from God, dead in sin and trespasses, have been born again and brought back to life by the power of His Spirit, not merely to live a moral life, but to dwell with Him for all eternity to enjoy Him in the full blessedness of God forever. Consider the wonder and mystery of this and how this blessed condition is yours. It's your inheritance forevermore. Prayer is hard. Even preparing this sermon, kept on thinking, I'm preaching on prayer. I should be praying more as I prepare to preach on prayer. Surely each of us fail and all of us think we should be praying more, don't we? Or more fervently, or more intelligently, or more consistently, with a greater apprehension of the divine truths that are ours in Christ. It's the hardest discipline of the Christian life. This is due in part to the extreme confusion that surrounds prayer, all the so-called spiritual exercises, and all the chatter and noise in our world around us. Yes, the world makes a mockery of it. False religions and teachers distort it, and the corruption of mankind. But there's another reason as well, one that creeps up from within rather than assaults us from without. Do you ever think that prayer is pointless? that thoughts and prayers don't do any good, do you ever think that prayer is a waste of time and accomplishes nothing? Are you ever tempted to think that? 
that you could be doing something else instead or should be doing something else like I really should be reading my Bible. I really should be, you know, preparing a meal for somebody who just lost a loved one. I really should be visiting with someone who needs comfort and consolation and friendship. I really should be, you know, taking up some kind of physical project for Christ's kingdom or sharing the gospel with somebody. That's what I should be doing. I don't have time for prayer. That's the greatest difficulty of prayer. It's not that those around us mock or scorn us for prayer. It's not even that the, the magistrate might forbid us from praying one day, as in Daniel's case. It is that we get pulled away from prayer because it seems to us to be pointless. But here's the point, brothers and sisters. In prayer, you mysteriously and wondrously come into contact with the infinitely majestic and eternally glorious God in heaven. It is that you come to this God who invites you through His Son to be sons and daughters of the Most High. And so Christians, you and I, pray to God with both love and wonder. We pray to God with both love and wonder. We love because God the Father first loved us and sent His Son into the world to save sinners. Because God the Father is love. And we reflect His personal love for us in both our religious devotion, prayer and worship, but also in our personal relationships as we pray for each other and with each other and do things for and with each other. And then we wonder, because God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, because He is far beyond us. Creation, even the highest heavens, cannot contain His glory. He is everywhere present, and yet utterly different and apart from us. And He speaks to us, yet speaks to us in His Word, by His Spirit, through His Son to make himself known to us, truly known just as he is. What a wonderful mystery is this, that men might know God and be with him, commune with him, that we might know God as Father and come to him through his Son and by his Spirit who makes us new. So let's now stand together and go to the throne of grace in prayer as we seek the Spirit's help to apply this word to us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.